0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. My name is Sai, like a sigh of relief, and welcome back to the podcast where I talk about everything from my journey in medicine, I'm a first year at BCM, to interviewing the movers, shakers, and influencers here in the field of medicine, here at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and yeah, we're branching out, we are doing great things, and today is going to be an interview. I'm sitting down with Dr. Atul Maheshwari, who is a neurologist and assistant professor here at Baylor Um, he teaches in the neurology neuroscience department he graduated from BCM as well, and did his residency at Mass Gen and Brigham and Women's Hospitals, and he did his postdoc fellowship at BCM as well. And I think the reason that I really enjoyed sitting down with him so much is because he's also my advisor for our small groups, and he is so passionate and driven when it comes to epilepsy and helping patients that have seizures, and working in research to make you know having a seizure-free life possible for his patients. So I really admire him. I really love everything he has. To to say and I think it's going to be super interesting to talk about academic medicine talk more about research and if that's something you're into that you're super interested in in doing as a physician this is going to be a super helpful talk for you guys so hopefully you guys keep listening thank you so much and go ahead and make sure to follow us on Spotify and give me a rating and review on iTunes I would love that so much and let's get into it. Okay, so I'm sitting here today at Baylor, actually, with my advisor and neurologist, Dr. Atul Maheshwari, and we're going to be talking about a bunch of interesting things today. So thank you so much for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So Dr. Maheshwari is a little bit nervous, but we'll get over that as this goes on. Um, So I guess, can you kind of describe what you do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Sure. Uh, So I am an academic neurologist here at Baylor, uh, and my time is split between three things. So the biggest amount of my time is spent doing research. I have a lab where I try to understand epilepsy, the very basic mechanisms of epilepsy. And secondly, I uh, teach. I teach uh, medical students. I'm an advisor for you, and uh, every year about 10 students who come through Baylor. And then I also see patients. So I have a clinic every Wednesday morning where I see patients specifically with epilepsy or concerned for seizures, and about uh, four weeks out of the year, I'm in the epilepsy monitoring unit at St. Luke's Hospital.
0: So, why the specific focus on epilepsy? I guess.
1: Oh, great question. Uh, so, I guess this goes way back to uh, why neurology. Mm-hmm. So, um, the reason I went into neurology was my fascination with the human brain and the human mind, um, mm-hmm. in particular my own. Uh, I was always questioning, why is it that I feel these ways? Why is it that I think these things? Um, And I guess my uh, interest in disease came from uh, when I was about eight years old, I started having headaches, really bad migraine headaches. And so the combination of all those things led me to really question how the brain works, and um, especially when it's not working and causes problems for people. So when I was in residency and I had to kind of think about, what am I going to do after I'm a full-fledged neurologist? Uh, I kept coming back to the reason why I wanted to be a neurologist in the first place. And that was looking at the very outermost part of the, the brain uh, known as the cortex. And there are a few neurological diseases that focus on the cortex. Mm-hmm. One is epilepsy. The other one is uh, behavioral neurology or um, mostly focusing on the dementias. And so I uh, you know, went through the different rotations as a resident and it was really epilepsy that caught my interest the most. And uh, it wasn't just the, the patients, um, it was the ability to make a difference. Um, I, I could see my patients who were coming in with, um, with these horrible seizures that were completely taking over their life and being able to give them medication to improve things. Uh, but also the potential for opportunity because there, um, as we've talked about in our, um, in our advising sessions, there's a good number, about a third of patients with epilepsy who don't respond to medications and we don't really understand why. And so it gave me an opportunity to try and see if I could help the field uh, of epilepsy and learn more about why these medications don't work and how we can help these patients uh, in the future.
0: Yeah, that's awesome to hear. That's like a very well thought of response to that question also. (laughs) Um, So at what point did you kind of decide that it was neurology? It was your third year, fourth year, earlier? Yeah.
1: Oh, great question. Yeah, and so I think this is uh, different for everyone. And I'm one of those people who came in saying, okay, I'm pretty sure I wanted neurology when I came into medical school. In undergrad, I majored in uh, biology and psychology. So I came yeah. in already with a lot of interest in the brain. And so uh, as I was going through preclinical, uh, the basic sciences, I was thinking, okay, what are, the, what are the different options when it comes to brain or brain-related stuff? And uh, the things that kept coming up were, of course, neurology and then neurosurgery, Mm -hmm. uh, psychiatry. And I threw in ophthalmology as well because it was pretty close. The eyes pretty close to the brain. And then uh, as I was going through everything I kept learning as I was going through head and neck anatomy, as I was going through uh, the neuro course itself, uh, which is still always, uh, since I was a student and and before then and, and since then, it's been one of the operated courses because it's just so fascinating even those who don't go into neurology but as I was going through um, it kept reinforcing my ideas everything I I previously loved about it I just kept reinforcing that idea that I love neurology
2: yeah
1: and so um, I tried to keep an open mind as I was going through my clinical rotations um, and my very first rotation was OBGYN and I kept finding myself asking neurological questions about yeah. my OB-GYN patients. Yeah. Uh, and then I went through the other fields, uh, neurosurgery, psychiatry, and, um, and ophthalmology. And while I found all those interesting, the types of questions I would like asking while rotating through those fields always came back to the neurological diseases. So if a patient came in with a brain bleed, um, I was less interested in, okay, how do we technically remove the brain bleed and do the surgical aspect? I was more interested in, okay, is the patient going to have epilepsy? How do we make sure they don't have seizures? Yeah. And so as I was going through, it just kept um, uh, telling me that, okay, neurology is what's right for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, was there ever, you know, another top contender out there?
1: Yeah, I'd say the, the closest contender was ophthalmology. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I really like the idea of um, being an expert of a, of a very... Um, a small part of the, of the of different organ systems that yeah. nobody else really felt comfortable with. So yeah. that when people said, okay, it's an eye problem, I don't know anything about this, let me just refer you to the op- ophthalmologist. Yeah. And that made me feel excited. And I like the idea of potentially working with my hands and um, uh, just being an expert in that. And uh, when I went through my ophthalmology rotation, I really loved it. And I, I, I think if I ended up choosing ophthalmology, I still would have been very happy up until this day. Uh, but then I kept going back to, uh, you, you know, my, my fascination with the brain and everything that um, all the different uh, ophthalmological disorders there were, the most exciting were the neuro ophthalmological disorders. Right. Uh, and so in the end, I had to come back to neurology.
0: Yeah. So you've already kind of touched on this, but is there like a particular personality type that like... You know, if if you have these certain qualities, you would you know be better suited for neurology.
2: Yeah,
1: no, great question. And <laughs> uh, and there are different stereotypes that go with different specialties for sure. And I'd say to some degree, the neurology stereotype is pretty true. Uh, neurologists neurologists tend to be nerdy, kind of uh, uh, have. Off the wall senses of humor, yeah. make corny jokes and in a good way. In a good way, of course. Way, yeah. of course, of course. <laughs> and I definitely felt that as I was rotating through neurology and you know going through residency, all my co-residents, uh, there's a good proportion of them that fit that mold. Yeah. That being said, not everyone is like that for sure. And um, and I think that uh, in general, neurology is a very welcoming field. So. Yeah. I found that uh, that was one of the parts that I liked the most is that the people that I was interacting with were in general very um, very open minded and easy to get along with.
0: yeah, they always say that um, like if your residents, you don't like them too much, like you shouldn't make your decision on that, but I could see how a positive experience would push you yeah in t- into that direction absolutely Oh yeah, so you actually went to Rice as well for yeah. undergrad. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about your participation? And you were in the Rice-Baylor program.
1: No, or no, I weren't. wasn't. Okay. So it's a funny story. I, um, so I applied for Rice-Baylor, uh, okay. and I thought, wow, that'd be great. Didn't get in. Very highly selective program. They only, yeah. at the time, accepted about 14 patients. Uh, patient,
2: 14,
1: <laughs> Fourteen. students yeah. a year. Yeah. And um, and so when I didn't get in, I wasn't crushed. Uh, yeah. I, I felt like, okay, I can still go to medical school. And then I applied just the normal, conventional way, and then yeah. got into Baylor. But... Um, There was a time, I think it was my junior year, uh, I thought, you know, I need to do something different. Um, Because I'm I'm tired of just going to classes and, you know, doing the same old, same old. And so I decided to audition for a musical. uh, And it was called Pre-Med the Musical. Oh my gosh. And it was a a home-written... Uh, script. It was folks at Rice who just ri- wrote this script for fun, and they said we'd like for people to audition for this musical. I yeah. had never been in a musical before. I don't sing professionally at all. Okay. Uh, and I remember auditioning. I sang the uh, the Star Spangled Banner because okay. I just didn't know anything else.
0: Prove your nationalism <laughs> that as well.
1: Why not? And uh, and they um, they cast me. So first of all, I was surprised that they cast me. Yeah. But they cast me as. Neil the Rice Baylor hottie that's okay. what they called him okay and, and I said wow that's crazy <laughs> and uh, and so in a way I was able to be a Rice Baylor student just if, if anything in, in this musical
0: there you go but it
1: was a lot of fun and I'm glad I did it that's uh, but awesome. but ultimately getting back to your question I applied the normal route and got yeah. into Baylor I was very excited uh, but Rice provides I think a good proportion of the class every year so yeah um, it, it's a uh, commonly tread pathway
0: yeah can you talk more about uh, your experience at Baylor then, once you got here, in terms of, you know, just navigating med school life in general?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, um, I'd i say that I was lucky um, that I have an older brother who's also a physician, uh, He um, and my dad is also a physician. He was my inspiration to go into medical school in the first place, and so I had some idea of what to expect um, going into medical school. Um, I also, coming from Rice, had a bunch of friends who were already uh, you know, in my, my circle of friends. So it was, I'd say the transition was fairly straightforward. Uh, the first year I started was, I believe, the first or second year that they were actually recording classes. Oh, okay. uh, before that, everybody had to go to class if you wanted to hear could not the lecture. imagine
0: that right yeah. <laughs> and
1: then we discovered this uh, amazing thing my year, where you could speed up the uh, the, the, the speed of yeah. the lecturer yeah. without increasing the pitch of the voice because naturally yeah. when you speed up it 's supposed to increase the pitch yeah uh, and so we totally abused that um, that power and i 'd say by the by you know halfway through the year. Um, at least fifty percent of the class wasn't going to wow. to the lectures anymore, and so um, I was hesitant to to do that because I'm you know a very straight laced type of person. But uh, by the end of the year, I was pretty much streaming a lot of my classes.
0: Did they know that that would happen once I, they? That's gave a great options? question.
1: I, I have no idea yeah. personally, but uh, but I think it comes down to learning styles. Uh, I f- I found that what was happening when I was going to class. Um, oftentimes I was falling asleep, yeah. uh, and uh, that was a waste of time. I, I was not learning very much, I wasn't engaged. Uh, I tried my best, I did all these kinds of things, I would pinch myself, I would bite my tongue just to see if I could stay awake so I could learn, yeah. but um, I, you know, I tried to make sure I got good sleep. No matter what I could do for some reason, uh, I just kept falling asleep. So I said, this isn't effective, let me try streaming from home, and I found I was much more of an active learner while, while streaming. That being said, for uh, lecturers that I uh, really respected, that I really wanted to be able to ask questions uh, either during the lecture or, more importantly, after the lecture, I never really asked questions during the lecture, but um, uh, go up to and talk to, get to know personally, uh, then I, I definitely made an effort to come
2: to class.
0: Got it. So speaking of uh, lecturing, Mm -hmm. I did look at our term five schedule and you are, on the first day, you're giving two lectures, I think, on epilepsy.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. term five, uh, there are, the the first lecture is just an overview of epilepsy and seizures, uh, classification, treatment. Uh, And then the second, I'm bringing a patient with me to class. Uh, One of the patients that I've had a long relationship with. And um, going through the process of taking a history and um, thinking about how to manage a patient with epilepsy.
0: Yeah, can you talk more about your like why you decided to be a teacher, be a professor? I guess.
1: Oh wow, great question. Uh, this was a difficult choice for me because I I didn't know when I became a faculty member that I loved teaching.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I had a sense that I might be good at it because um, in residency uh, they give awards for uh, residents who are good teachers. Uh, I've been told informally that, hey, thank you for uh, you know, describing this, uh, you did a good job of that, etc. Um, and then when I had to decide whether or not to be um, academic or go into private practice, Uh, My reason for going academic was not really to be able to teach medical students, residents, or fellows. It was more so that I could have this opportunity to do do research. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I um, was a junior faculty member doing mostly research and some clinical work, uh, people kept asking me, um, and this happens to all junior faculty members, can you teach this class or can you be available to mentor these students? And I had a very hard time saying no, uh, yeah. which is a common thing as a junior faculty member. And you're encouraged to, to say yes to as much as possible so that you're seen as a team player, which I, I, you know, I feel like I am anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so um, as I started to do these things, started teaching medical students, started teaching residents, um, and started mentoring you guys, uh, yeah. I found that I really actually did enjoy it. Um, yeah. And it was something that I wanted to be, uh, you know, year after year, a part of my job. And so, um, whenever I'm asked from year to year, okay, what percent of your time do you want to be doing research? Do you want to be doing clinical work? Do mm-hmm. you want to be doing teaching or mentoring students? I always make sure that I have a good proportion of my time carved out for teaching because uh, over time, I've learned that I really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you like working with us. Of course, <laughs> of
1: course. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it keeps me on my feet too. I think it's easy for me to see patients day after day and say, okay, this is what's known and I don't need to really challenge myself. But when I'm teaching, I really need to know what I'm talking about. I really need to be able to answer questions, especially as times change, uh, what we know about the world of neurology and epilepsy changes. I need to stay up to date for the very reason of making sure that I'm teaching the right thing.
0: Yeah. So how much would you say you spend, like time-wise, how much do you spend on research?
1: Yeah. So yeah. So it's a uh, yeah, so it's, a, it's supposed to be about 75% okay. of my time, and so that that ends up working about uh, about right. About 75% spending in the lab with people in the lab, uh, writing grants, writing papers. Um, that takes up the most of my time.
0: And did you um, go down that road because neuroscience lends itself to having a focus on research, or because you know you were ultimately super passionate about research?
1: Yeah, I'd say both. Um, okay. Definitely. Uh, I, there's just so much that we don't understand about how the brain works and so uh, it was very easy for me to to start asking questions in that area so when i first started after residency i had this golden opportunity of being able to work with one of the giants in the field his name is jeff nobles and he's still here at um, at baylor he's been here for over 30 years and i worked with him for one year no clinical responsibilities um, no teaching responsibilities, just learning the basics of research, um, yeah. understanding what we know, and what, more importantly, what we don't know. And it was that year that that I uh, started to realize that not only do I have a passion for it, but it's something that I really enjoy.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk more about uh, what you are actually researching?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, there's uh, the, the biggest question that I'm trying to answer is the same question that I posed to you earlier, and that is that you know, there's a third of these patients that don't have a response to medications. Uh, yeah. You give them one medication, you give them two, or you give them 12, they don't respond. And we don't understand why. And so one of the ways we're looking at this, for example, uh, is um, patients who have epilepsy surgery. So uh, epilepsy surgery is um, only considering patients who don't respond to medications, mm-hmm. um, uh by definition, since they don't respond, it's the perfect specimen to try and um, to try and research. Mm-hmm. And once we find the focus of where the seizures are coming from, and we take it out surgically, then we can look at it under the microscope and try and understand what's different from this, uh, or what's different compared to the normal brain that uh, right. that is making this patient not respond. And so that's one of the ways that we're looking at that.
0: Got it. So. I remember in our one of our PRN conversations, our small group, we were talking about how some people at your clinic, some patients might not have the funds to get this surgery that could possibly cure their epilepsy. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk more about what it's like to experience that?
1: Absolutely. No, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Because since 2000, so almost 20 years now, we've known what the process is, what the appropriate um, standard of care is for patients who don't yeah. respond to um, to medication. In fact, there's this very clearly defined syndrome called mesial temporal sclerosis. Mm-hmm. And um, when we see it, uh, there's this kind of yin and yang to it, the, the good and bad to it. Uh, the bad is that we know that most of these patients won't respond to medications. But the good part is that they're close to 80% seizure-free if we can just take out that scarred part of the brain and do the surgery. for that. So the clinic that I'm at, the Harris Health Smith Clinic, is a wonderful clinic that offers a lot of uh, opportunities for treatment for patients who don't have medical insurance, or they're underinsured, or they're undocumented. And Mm -hmm. so um, these patients, just like any other patient, may have epilepsy. And just like any other patient with epilepsy, may be in the one-third of uh, patients with epilepsy who don't respond to medications. And so at least once a week on average, I'll see a patient that has this very clearly defined syndrome of mesial temporal sclerosis. We'll see it on the MRI, and we'll know that um, uh, we'll get that overwhelming dichotomous feeling. We'll feel, I'm very sorry, but you have a disease that uh, is frequently resistant to medication. Um, And then usually, in the private world, I'd be able to tell that patient. But the good news is that we can evaluate you for a surgery that might cure you of your epilepsy, even though the medications aren't working. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, Harris Health doesn't offer this um, this program. It's an expensive program to implement, so mm-hmm. it's understandable in an otherwise cash-strapped um, entity uh, that they don't have the capacity to, to offer it. So we, we go through this every week where we have to tell them, unfortunately, we don't have this available, but here are your options. So number one, we can try and get you some form of insurance. We can see what the possibilities are to help you get insurance. We can work with our social workers and go down that pathway to go to another institution uh, that might be able to help you with that. And the other is I try to give them hope that uh, we may be able to have an epilepsy monitoring unit and the possibility of epilepsy surgery at some time in the future. And so that's where I'm really hopeful I've been putting um, all of my efforts in, working with the administrators at Harris Health, working with the Department of Neurology here at Baylor, seeing if we can um, put together some kind of program to at least help these patients where it's very clear that they're getting a lower standard of care than the rest of the community.
0: Yeah, so this is, it's technically a life-saving surgery. Mm -hmm. So I just have a hard time wrapping my brain around the fact that people can't get it
1: yeah I, I would argue that it's an issue of acuity so it's life-saving in the sense of long term yeah um, I, I would say it's similar to the dialysis problem um, yeah. that uh, at Harris Health um, uh, elective dialysis is not really um, offered uh, it's for and this is this may have changed uh, over the last few years but last I recall um, only emergent dialysis was available which um, is at that point in the acute setting, uh, life saving, but if they would have started dialysis, uh, you know, years in advance when it was indicated, then it would have been perhaps more life saving. And so the same thing with these patients with with epilepsy, Uh, seizures can kill you. And uh, there's this entity known as sudden unexpected death, which is most common in patients who have uncontrolled seizures. And so we had a case of SUDEP, a patient in our clinic uh, who passed away about six months ago
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and uh, it begs the question of could we have prevented that if we had access to a higher standard of care.
0: Yeah, so who, who do we need to talk to I guess or who do you need to talk to? <laughs> yeah.
1: No, that's a great question. I, I think it takes um, uh, a big effort on, on a lot of people's sides. So yeah. um, one is uh, uh, education of the community um, yeah. and um, pulling together resources uh, between the academic institutions like Baylor and the hospital system like Harris Health, and seeing where we can um, where we can get the money to be able to provide this.
0: Yeah, man, yeah. that is just it's crazy that we're going to have to face that as future physicians. It's yeah. not a problem that's going to end anytime soon.
1: No, I mean it's a it's a worldwide problem. There is um, uh, you know in third world countries. Having an epilepsy monitoring unit would be a huge boon, and the ability to do epilepsy surgery. Um, but uh, it's a shame that here in Houston, in a first-world country, that we we don't have that capacity. Yeah. But yeah, no. This is uh, arguably, if if that's if there's one thing that I could do for my patients between now and let's say five years from now, uh, that would be the top of my list.
0: Yeah. So how many people would you say come into your clinic needing the surgery that can't get it? Oh like uh,
1: yeah, that's a great, every great now and question. Then. At least one patient every week. So, okay. um, and we did actually we did a study uh, that we published uh, two years ago that looked at this very question: how many of our patients have mesial temporal sclerosis? Yeah. And over the last five years, we had 80 patients, um, and they make up a big proportion of our clinic because yeah. they come in every three months um, saying, "Hey, I still have seizures." Yeah. We tell them that's expected because okay. we know that after you failed two medications the likelihood of us increasing your medication or changing you to a different medication uh, to cure your epilepsy or to, to uh, keep you from having more seizures uh, is very low. So yeah. it's, um, our, in a way, our, our clinics get enriched with patients who have the most difficult to control seizures.
0: Right. Um, so I think the concept of delivering bad news is something that all medical students, all physicians ultimately dread. So much so that we've had many workshops here at Baylor to, yeah. you know, talk about how to go about doing that. Do you have any methods that you use particularly that you know we can discuss here?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think it is an art that's learned over time. Um, I learned by uh, by hearing other people do it poorly, and yeah. more importantly, other people do it well. And okay. so in the uh, in neurology residency training, um, one of the hardest uh, news our type of news to deliver is when somebody has a a devastating brain bleed uh, Mm. that they are very unlikely to recover from Um, and so there's a mix of emotions that are involved with that um, that uh, on the one hand there's this um, question of what is the prognosis for this patient do we really know that they're never going to recover Um, and uh, how do we convey that in a way that still gives some hope if If necessary Um, and then the other so there's frustration with that and then there's also this um, kind of intense sadness that comes with um, especially with a young patient that um, had their whole life ahead of them and you're telling the family that uh, you know it's not going to be the same after this after this event and so what I found uh, works best and, and this is from years of seeing other people do do it well is uh, to make sure that you feel a connection with the patient's family, the patient, whoever it is that you're talking to, uh, when giving bad news. And that's something that um, you have to be able to read other person's body language, the way that they're talking, and if, uh, if, if it's clear that there's something missing, that there's not, a, there's not a connection, they're on a different page than you are, uh, then you have to recalibrate and start right. from a different angle, make sure that they're understanding what you're talking about. And uh, that's what I found works best. When things go poorly, it's usually because there's something that's not being communicated. There's something that's not clear. Uh, and there's a disconnect between the person giving the bad news and the person who's taking the bad news. Yeah. And then ultimately, um, I think hope is really important. Um, conveying some sense of hope. Um, so, for example, um, with patients' families uh, mm-hmm. who you're trying to tell them that there's... A, um, uh, a very small chance that they're going to recover or be independent or take care of themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the One of the things that's very important is to remind the family that they're not making the decision for the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to make the decision that the patient would make if they were able to voice their own opinion. Okay. Um, and um, if their opinion is that they wouldn't have wanted to live completely uh, you know, dependent on other people uh, and in a state that they weren't able to, to be the person that they were previously, um, then that's giving hope to the family that you're fulfilling that patient's wishes yeah. and that uh, this is what they would have wanted. And so reframing it that way often I think makes it helpful. That's why I always encourage uh, patients and people like yourself to, to talk to your loved ones about what would they want in, in yeah. a setting where they weren't able to make decisions on their own.
0: Right. Yeah. In ethics were talking extensively about making advanced directives and talking about operating in the best interest of the patient versus, or best interest of a family member versus substituted judgment and like when mm-hmm. you would use each one. Yeah. Um, and I think in situations like this, it's particularly important that incoming med students seek out those experiences over, you know, Something that would make them more robotic, like completely being focused on academics, you know, kind of branching out, getting more clinical experience. Mm-hmm. I think is ultimately key to becoming a med student in the future.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Or you just end up a robot, and you don't know how to speak to your patients.
1: I agree. Yeah, and then going back to the um, uh, delivering bad news, the uh, you know the patients that can't have epilepsy surgery, for example, because it's not offered at, at Harris Health, yeah. um, uh, that's another example of where giving hope is important. I always end with saying that we're doing what we can to try and yeah. see how we can help you. And so we're working with um, you know, Baylor and St. Luke's and Harris Health trying to find some kind of program where we can get patients referred to a, uh, an established center to get the, the evaluation and the surgery that they need.
0: Yeah. So in Harris County we do have like the gold card and like associated programs under it but to what extent does that cover like, something as big as surgery that would cost a lot?
1: Yeah. No, I'd say, by and large, Harris Health does a great job. Uh, the the yeah. gold card allows patients access to all the resources that are available at Harris Health. Okay. And so for, let's say somebody has a brain tumor, and they need surgery to remove the tumor, uh, that's something that Harris Health can provide. We have a very good neuro-oncologist, uh, and we have very good neurosurgeons that are trained in that capacity and can help take care of patients with that. Right. Uh, this is very specific to epilepsy surgery, which right. is a... Um, a uh, different beast altogether that we have difficulty with.
0: So it's still considered elective surgery, right? Yeah, you know,
1: yeah. I guess it all depends on how you frame it. Um, okay. I think uh, most centers would say that this is um, this is required, and insurance does pay for an evaluation in an epilepsy monitoring unit and for an epilepsy surgery. Um, so uh, I would say that it's something that there. Are, it's a, something among many procedures at Harris Health that are recognized to be um, standard of care, but mm-hmm. because of money constraints has not yet been added to its roster.
0: Got it, got it. So I kind of wanted to shift focuses just a little bit. Um, yeah, sure. Kind of a personal story from, so I was in um, Texas Children's in the NICU yesterday, and I love kids and I love babies. And so seeing this population that I might want to treat in the future in just such a vulnerable, state made me really sad so I don't know how to exactly balance like wanting to treat and help these patients with oh I don't want to see sick kids all the time right (laughs) so I know it's kind of it wasn't really a question but like in terms of picking a residency in the future how do you balance those two of I want to serve this vulnerable population versus you know I don't know if I can physically handle seeing that every day.
1: Yeah. No, that's tough. I, I think that's a, a very important observation you made for yourself. And and everybody's going to be different about how how they encounter things. So it's I, I'd make it akin to, um, uh, let's say, as a um, high school student, uh, if you saw blood and you fainted. You know, people might yeah. joke, oh, you should probably shouldn't go into medicine. Yeah. But, uh, but if you have a passion for it and you really love it, then you'll get over the obstacles that might get in the way. And over time, you might get... Um, used to uh, seeing blood and then you get over it and then um, you can get back to the passion that that you have at the same time I think it's important to not get too desensitized to things so um, if you really have a passion for let's say neonatology babies taking care of babies um, and um, in order to be able to fulfill that passion you force yourself to be desensitized to some degree to some of the emotional aspects of the of the field Um, it's important to recognize that and then harness it for good so what I would say is that um, use that emotion whenever you're conveying to parents or family members um, how uh, uh, difficult the situation might be and it's okay to cry with your with in that setting with your uh, the family members but at the same time Uh, find that balance so that you don't let that interfere with your ability to take care of the patient.
0: Yeah completely. Yeah the situation with you know seeing blood and fainting that reminded me of the first time I ever shadowed in high school. I shadowed an emergency uh, medicine physician and I was in the ER and it was like seven in the morning and I actually passed out Hmm. Um, after watching like a very small procedure. And I was admitted into the ER at that same day. And then my dreams of wanting to be an emergency medicine physician were just crushed that day.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. And so
0: I regained that, though, in okay, med good. school. Yeah, it came back to me. But So, so that's
1: a perfect example. So yeah. If you have a passion for something, then you'll find a way to make it work.
0: Right. I like that advice. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you are a neurologist. I have some questions that pertain to neurology in particular. So stress and sleep are things that med students struggle with on a daily basis. Um, Being chronically stressed, some would say, Uh, you know, day to day in our wellness curriculum, they have us fill out surveys of are you experiencing burnout? And we slowly realize that we are getting closer and closer to that. (laughs) Um, So I guess, what are your personal tips, but also how do you prevent that from occurring in your life, and what advice do you have for medical students regarding that?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, and It's an important one and part of you know the uh, wellness curriculum that we're trying to implement for for students over the four years that you're here. And um, uh, I'd say that it, it's a balance, of course, and and stress has this you know inverted U curve of um, relationship with performance. So uh, if you don't have any stress, that's a problem. Uh, because yeah. you're not motivated, you won't actually do what you need to get done.
2: Right.
1: Um, there's this, uh, you know, Goldilocks area of where uh, you want to be uh, stressed enough to keep you motivated and um, still be uh, able to, to do what you need to do. But if you get too stressed, then the stress overwhelms you and then you can't perform. And so um, I think the key is knowing yourself and knowing where you are along that curve at any given point. Yeah. and sometimes that's hard um, when you're very biased so me for example i'm very biased that i can take a lot yeah. um, that i don't get stressed that i t- try to take pride in saying that, oh, I can't get stressed. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't get stressed. You bring it on, the more stress, the better. Right. Um, and so I can't trust myself. I can't um, believe myself when I say that, okay, I, I've, I've taken too much on um, and it's going to be a problem. And so I rely on those that I trust. Um, my family, my, my wife in particular, uh, my mentor, my academic mentor, my colleagues. Um, they're very helpful in letting me know that, hey, you know what, maybe you've taken a, a little on a little too much and should scale back a little bit. And, uh, and that's incredibly helpful. Uh, and then slowly, I think you do, over time, start to learn more about yourself and the, uh, based on the calibration from your peers and then with experience, what worked, what didn't work, it gets easier over
2: time.
0: Yeah, that's good to know. Um, so kind of related to that, um, I remember during one of our small group discussions, I heard the word sleep hygiene from, from you for the first time. Yeah, yeah. So can you kind of explain like what that is?
1: Sure, yeah. No, I, I think it's very important, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that I'm not very good at it myself, personally, yeah. but I'm very good at explaining it to other people.
0: That tends to be the <laughs> case with physicians, right, you know?
1: Right, exactly. So it's still, it's still something I'm working on, and I'd argue, and I hope my wife would agree, that I'm getting better at it, but the, um, the whole idea is to make sure that you train your brain to be good at sleeping, because the way the world is set up is to do the opposite. So um, ever since, you know, the light bulb was invented, um, we've been messing with the way that our brain should be working. So the brain is very attuned to light cycles, something known as the circadian rhythm. And, uh, you know, when the sun rises, it gives signals to the brain uh, to release hormones that tell you that, hey, you should be awake. Mm -hmm. And then when the sun sets, um, your brain starts to lose those signals and starts to realize, okay, it's time to fall asleep. And so uh, when we're exposed to a lot of light um, and um, uh, excitement, uh, anything that increases our level of arousal, in those times when we should be sleeping, uh, it messes with our circadian rhythms. So what I tell patients, I I don't usually lead with that intro, but what I tell them (laughs) is that that there are a couple of things that can help you uh, get good sleep. And the first most important thing is uh, taking the TV out of your bedroom. I'd say before the advent of phones, um, that was the most common thing that kept people from getting good sleep. Yeah. The TV acts like the Sun. Uh, It makes your brain think that it's still uh, time to be awake. And even when you turn it off, uh, the signals are already there, and it's hard to fall asleep. People have difficulty falling asleep with that, and so um, uh, patients tell me whenever they've removed the TV from their bedroom, they sleep so much better. Just even that knowledge that it's not there seems to help uh, with getting people to fall asleep. Yeah. And so the second thing is um, so avoiding any kind of light stimulus, um, phones. Um, the lights in your bedroom, the lights in your room in general. Just dim the lights and keep it uh, relatively dark for at least an hour before going to bed. And then when you wake up in the morning, the alternate is also true. You should turn on all the lights. A lot of us tend to say, oh, I don't like the light. Just keep the blinds closed. Don't turn on the lights. I'm going to just go around and try and find my coffee and then... Um, after I drink my cup of coffee, then I'll maybe slightly open the blinds.
2: Yeah,
1: um, That's not very helpful. If you want to wake up, uh, the best thing to do is to turn on all the lights, expose your brain uh, to uh, the fact that it's time to wake up, and that works really well. The final thing is routine. So um, going to sleep the, at the same time every day, waking up the same time every day, those are the best things to train your brain that, hey, um, in the cycle, the circadian rhythm of getting up and going to sleep around the same time.
0: Got it. So how much sleep should I be getting? <laughs> yeah, no, great question.
1: And that's really um, different from person to person about yeah. how much you should get. So in general, seven eight hours of sleep is what's recommended. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but some people feel like after six hours of sleep, they feel super well rested. Uh, yeah. And some people after nine hours of sleep, they still don't feel good. The general rule is if you wake up feeling well rested and you don't get drowsy during the day, feeling like you need to take naps, uh, then that means you got a good night's sleep.
0: Yeah. What is your opinion on napping, by the way? Is that. (laughs) supposed to be a good thing is that actually restful sleep
1: oh man i love i love <laughs> napping. i'm a huge fan of napping myself personally but a nap uh, in the middle of the day um generally means if if you're you require that if you need that um in order to get your energy back generally means you're probably not getting good sleep um during in the in, you know at night um, but that being said if you if you have a test coming up and you um, feel like you need to stay up a little bit later to stay on top of things Um, And then to make up for that, you take a power nap in the middle of the day. I think that's very reasonable.
0: Got it. Yeah. So I think I know me as well as a lot of other med students are guilty of kind of skimping out on sleep. So I I realize, you know, I want to do all these things. I want to record my podcast. I want to, you know, meet with friends and all of that. And so I'm like, I'll just get one last hour of sleep and then I can feel it immediately the next day, even if it's slightly less than what I normally get.
1: Yeah, it's so easy. I mean, I'm guilty myself. It's so easy when you have yeah. so many other things that are high priorities. I think Dr. Brand had mentioned it's all about not time management, but priority management. Yeah. And so the the simple, easy fix would just be to say, this is a priority. Sleep right. is a priority. I need to sleep. And right. so even more than studying, even more than eating, okay, so not more than eating, <laughs> but even more than uh, necessarily going out uh, and spending a little bit more time with friends, sleep is a, is a priority for me. I want to make sure that I get that. That's, right. uh, if you do that, then it'll be easy to get good sleep.
0: Got it. And it's supposed to help you like, remember everything you've studied that day and all of that, as we hear.
1: Yeah, memory. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of memory consolidation happens in sleep, and so uh, you can argue to yourself if you need a reason, that's a good one.
0: Yeah. Got it. So another kind of change of pace here, but where do you see your field kind of progressing in the next decade or so, you know, when when my class will be you know, in, in that realm.
1: Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even uh, predict. It's so, um, I think the problem is we don't know what we don't know yet. Um, yes. There's so much we don't know about the brain that um, I'm, I'm going to be very, probably surprised. For example, right now, the big, one of the biggest things that came out in epilepsy uh, is something known as responsive neurostimulation. Mm-hmm. And this is a device, it's ingenious, it's a smart device. It's a device that uh, sits in your brain. uh, Mm -hmm. Before putting the device in, you figure out where the focus of the seizure might be. And the device sits in in that focus, Mm -hmm. and it's constantly recording and looking for a seizure. And when it sees one, it then delivers a stimulation to stop the seizure. And this has been found to be very effective, especially for patients who aren't eligible for uh, epilepsy surgery, to remove Mm -hmm. that focus. Um, and um, there's no way I could have predicted that 10 years ago. Maybe some people did, but, uh, right. but uh, I would have thought that people would have found better medications to treat epilepsy or that they found a way to transfer maybe some of the things that were going on in that part of the brain to another part of the brain so that you can then actually take it out. Uh, right. But uh, so I, I have a hard time predicting uh, what will come in the future. But I think my suspicion, if I had to guess one thing, I think it's going to be gene-based therapies. that okay. um, That... Uh, a lot of what's going on, a lot of uh, what's wrong with the brain, um, can be pinned down to certain genetic defects. Uh, okay. In epilepsy, in particular, especially those uh, that start out at a young age, um, there are uh, single gene problems, and then more commonly there are uh, gene problems that are across multiple uh, multiple probable genes that are affecting the uh, that are causing the disorder.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, in addition, things like medication resistance, it's probable that there are certain genes that are more likely to contribute than others, and it was predetermined that before um, you even took your first medication that you were likely to be medication resistant. And so I think the ability to, to use that information to give therapies based on the genetics Either um, to give a targeted, individualized therapy, personalized medicine, right, uh, or to actually change the genes um, in yeah. your in your brain or in the rest of your body in order to make you fight the disease. Um, that's where I, I would predict. Uh, that's where,
0: um, like epigenetics, would have a role. So yeah, like that, I mean, that,
1: yeah, that definitely you know, is uh, part of it. So the genes themselves, and then also the way those genes are modified or epigenetics. Um, uh, there's a huge area of potential intervention that could happen with them.
0: Yeah, that's good to know. That's yeah. awesome. I, I look forward to seeing if your predictions are right and where we're headed. I, I'm next also
1: biased. A lot of my research has to do with genetic research, right. but, uh, but right. that's where I'm hopeful that uh, we'll see a lot of personalized therapy in particular.
0: Yeah. So speaking of more innovations in the field of neurology, what is your opinion on how artificial intelligence is going to change your field?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think this is something that comes up frequently. I would say when I first started um, training in neurology, people were saying, "Oh, in ten years, um, AI will take over your job." And yeah, you'll no They're longer... still
0: saying that, <laughs> right. so.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I, I don't think that's completely true. I, I think that there is some. Um, parts of what we do that uh, will thankfully be replaced because it's a lot of boring stuff, a lot of the automated stuff that we do. Yeah. Um, the hardest stuff we do, the stuff that really requires a human brain to do it, I think uh, it's a long time coming before AI will replace that. Yeah. Uh, for example, part of my job is reading EEGs, uh, electroencephalograms. These are the brain brainwaves that, um, yeah. that we look at to help us identify whether or not a patient might be at risk for seizures, and then um, we can tell a whole lot um, about the way the brain is working by looking at the EEG, and it's a lot of pattern recognition, and there are some things that AI has already started to help us with, identifying potential areas where this could be a seizure focus or uh, potential areas where this could actually be a seizure, Uh, but it to this day still isn't as good as uh, a human is, and I think I'm very hopeful that it will actually be more of a boon um, to have these tools to use uh, rather than harmful to our field.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, In terms of automated surgeries in particular, we already have like the da Vinci and all of that. So I think ultimately, well, do you think that you will need, you know, a human to monitor these things and that's where our jobs will be headed in the future? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I think that... um, Starting at an early age, the earlier you get um, familiar with, comfortable with computer science, with robotics, with uh, with artificial intelligence, the more likely you will be successful as a physician or in any field, but in, as a physician in particular, um, I, I'd I'd say it's akin to the electronic medical record. Yeah. Um, there were uh, people who were holdouts that said, "Oh, I don't need an electronic medical record. I'll keep everything by paper," and um, and eventually as it is now, all of Baylor is electronic. Uh, right. And uh, it's it's going to happen. It's made life uh, to some degree a lot easier and more efficient. Uh, it could be argued that there's some negative parts that come with the electronic medical record as well. But um, but in the end, um, it was going to happen. And the more we embrace it, I think the more um, more we'll find it useful.
0: Yeah. In terms of the EMR, is that... Mandated now, but
1: yeah, that's a okay. good question. I, I don't follow the laws very closely, but yeah. uh, but I think uh, more and more you're rewarded for having electronic medical record, and you're penalized if you don't.
0: Okay, yeah, I can. I have a personal experience with um, the EMR just failing outside of the United States. Mm. So I actually had a patient, my nephrology clinic that I uh, volunteer at. Um, So we had a patient who had gotten a transplant outside of the United States and lost all of his medical records. Mm. So we didn't know how to proceed with that. How Mm. do you know what he's had done? What kind of medications he's on, he didn't even know. So I I completely see the positives of the EMR as well.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a boon, especially um, in uh, neurology where a lot of patients patients have memory problems and they can't remember what's going on. At the same time, I always tell students not to rely too much on the medical record because there are potential for errors, things can get propagated. uh, you know, misconceptions can get propagated, a diagnosis can get propagated, yeah. when uh, in reality something else is going on. So, um, as with anything, uh, you know, it's always good to go back to the patient and get the primary information from the source.
0: Yeah, and there's definitely a learning curve with all of it. I've heard, you know, MS2s and MS3s still talking about how they're figuring out the lingo, they're figuring out how to use like Epic and all of that. So,
1: right, Absolutely.
0: just a learning process so one of the questions that i had to kind of begin to wrap up is um what are the biggest gaps in your field today
1: Oof, that's a good question yeah. gaps and you don't have to field.
0: talk particularly about epilepsy you can talk about neurology or sure you know in medicine in general
1: yeah gaps in the field um so let's see i would say the connection to the patient i think is um is becoming more difficult um, this is just from my personal observation. I think that um, oftentimes we a patient will come to the doctor and the uh, the physician will um, rely a lot on ancillary information beyond what the patient is giving them. So, yeah. um, you know, preconceived notions about what's very common. Um, uh, for example, let's say a heart attack. Um, so yeah. a patient comes in to the emergency room and um, the, the physician's already... F- thinking, you know, heart attack's very common. Pain is coming in with chest pain. And so without really going into much detail with the patient, um, just a lot of things will happen based on the fact that the concern is if this patient has a heart attack, we need to fix that quickly, or we need to figure it out and and do what we need to quickly. And so we'll get a chest x-ray, we'll get an echocardiogram, we'll get an EKG, we'll order troponins, uh, do everything that we normally would do to diagnose and treat a heart attack because that's what we're most worried about. But the probably best thing to do would be to sit down with the patient and talk to them and say, okay, uh, when did this start? How long has this been going on? What were you doing when it happened, etc.? The the same old carts way right. that we're taught right. in uh, in first year, but with the demands on, uh, you know, seeing the number of patients that are coming through, uh, with documenting and charting everything, uh, with defensive medicine, being worried that you're not catching the most dangerous things, I think it's a it's a natural inclination for uh, patients to be kind of treated secondhand by all these other things uh, rather than firsthand. Uh, just yeah. talking to them and figuring out what's going on. I think my parents' generation was very good at that, um, yeah. and um, and our generation. Uh, I put you and me in the same generation. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> that we're uh, we need to continue to remember how to do that.
0: Yeah, uh, I hope I hope medical students can learn something from that in terms of the kinds of physicians we want to be in the yeah. future. I hope so too. Um, speaking of that, is there any sort of Advice that you would have for medical students going forward—something that you want to leave us all with?
1: Yeah, no, I think something that uh, we talked about from time to time, and I always bring it up whenever I talk one-on-one with uh, with my students who are struggling with what to choose as a um, as a specialty. And it'll come. What I've noticed, what I've observed in myself and in others um, who are also physicians. Uh, the thing that's really, really important is having a passion for what you do. That, I think, is the, the number one risk factor for getting burnt out. If, you, if you're yeah. not truly passionate about what you do, you're doing it for other reasons, it's what your parents want you to do, or yeah. you think it looks cool to be X, um, then uh, you, you'll find that uh, later on it's easy to get burnt down. But um, no matter what happens, no matter what life throws at you, if you have a, a real passion, you remember why you have the passion for that field, then um, you'll be very resilient in the field of medicine. So that's, I guess, my parting thoughts is that, um, you know, try to uh, find what you're passionate about. And then whenever you do get feelings of burnout, remember why you have that passion and uh, that, that'll get you through it.
0: Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah,
1: it's been my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me.
0: Yeah, this was a great conversation. We should do it again sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe over an advising session. Sure. sure. (laughs) All right. All right. That was the newest episode of Brown Girl White Coat. Thank you guys so much for listening. And let me know what you guys want to hear. I would love to hear from you. You can DM me on my Instagram at Cyber, S A I E B E A R. And don't forget to follow us on iTunes and go ahead and rate and review on, oh, wait, rate and review on iTunes. Follow on Spotify. I get that mixed up. But yes.